Classic Comics Forum podcast presents Origin Stories, the comics that shaped us. Episode 2, featuring Roquefort Raider. Origins, origins, it's where we come from, it's where we've been. Everyone's got one. Origin Stories, yeah! Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris King. This time around, we've got another special bonus episode of Origin Stories, the comics that shaped us. This time, I'll be joined by a very special guest, Roquefort Raider. You may remember that Roquefort Raider previously joined me for episodes four and five of the Classic Comics Forum podcast, where we discussed the history of Red Sonja at Marvel Comics. Well, this time around, we'll be talking in-depth about Roquefort Raider's own uh, origin story as a comic book fan and creator and collector and we'll be hearing all of the really interesting things that went into forming him as a comic book fan so uh it's really exciting you know obviously roquefort raider is from quebec so he has a lot of different influences from our compared to our other guests. So I'm really excited to be able to bring this to you. I also just want to mention real quick, if you're listening to this uh, in November, early December of 2020 when I'm posting it, just want to mention that this episode is sponsored by me because my comic, The Crime Busters, which I write and draw, is currently live on Kickstarter. So uh, if you're into uh, what I call a Scooby-Doo meets Cthulhu, a supernatural mystery adventure. That sounds like your sort of thing. Hey, check it out. If it's not your sort of thing, that's fine, because now it's time for another episode of Origin Stories. So let's just get right into it. Origin Stories with Roker for Raider. Uh, my first language is French, obviously, and I grew up reading European comics mostly. Uh, I actually, actually, that's not quite true. I started with the Sunday pages, the Tarzan Sunday pages drawn by Russ Manning, and I still think they're among the best comics ever produced. But I wouldn't say that they got me to start collecting comics. It's really when I started reading the classic of classics, here we can see Red Rackham's Treasure, which was covered uh, at CCF recently. So the adventures of Tintin were read by my mother. I couldn't read yet. I mean, I just looked at the pictures and my sister and I were allowed 10 pages a night. So each night my mom would open, break a book open and read 10 pages and she'd do the voices. And uh, at one point, my sister and I bamboozled at gra our grandmother who had to mind us for an evening. And we sort of forgot to mention that she was limited to 10 pages a night. So we got her to read the entire thing. <laughs> I think of, of course it's, it's it's a wonderful series. It's, it's technically extraordinary. The, the stories are interesting. Uh, the characters are truly classics. And I really appreciate the fact that it was not spun off into a sister series or anything. I mean, it, it's, it's really a classic corpus and it, that's what it remains to this day. Uh, I hate to say this, but I haven't actually read, I haven't actually read any of the Tintin, the Tantan, is that, did I say it? Uh, but I've seen the movie, so. Um, yeah, the movie's pretty bad. <laughs> the, movie, the movie's pretty bad. I mean, the, the movie is exactly the direction I do not want that series to go. I mean, it, it, that, that's not the way it's supposed to be presented. I, had the, I knew when I was watching it, I went into it thinking, 
I know the comics are better without even seeing the movie. I went in and I was like, I know that what I'm about to see is not representative of what the actual comics are like, but I just haven't, um, for me, the format is a big thing. And since it's in more of a book format instead of yes, like, it is. issues, uh, it's just something that um, maybe it's just the distribution system here in the U.S. Like when I'm going to a comic store at, as a kid, they didn't have that. So I just missed it completely. But I, but it's something that it's on my list of, uh, of things to, to check out. Yeah. It, it, it's too bad. It, it's not that available. In fact, uh, that format issue is a big problem when it comes to European comics. I know that in Britain now, they have more and more of these uh, Belgian, French comics that are being translated. But for the longest time, it, it was, they weren't, just weren't available in America, not in English. So uh, that's unfortunate, but there, there, are, there are treasures to be discovered there. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I, I definitely, I, I've got a list of, uh, of things and, and Tintin's on there. So what's your, uh, what's your second choice? Second choice, another one that you probably haven't heard about because that's never been translated. It's the Alex series. This one is the last Spartan, and Alex is really in the vein of Tintin in the terms of classicism. It's a historical series. There's no fantasy whatsoever at all in it. No magic, no monsters, no wizards. And uh, I would go as far as to say no superhuman uh, uh, barbarians who can defeat single armies. It's really, really realistic. And the point was to have adventures set in the Greco-Roman world. And uh, Alex, the, the, the main character, is a, he's a young Gaul, and he's been adopted by a Roman senator, I think. He's got a sidekick, like everybody. Everybody has a sidekick. And he just travels through the Roman world. And book after book, you discover another aspect of the Roman world. This one is set in Greece, where an old, an old Spartan city is still resisting the conquest by the Romans. And it's a hidden city because it's been a while since Greece has fallen. And uh, it has a wonderful siege scene that lasts for half the book. And I was fascinated by it. I must have been eight years old, but using those little green soldiers that came in a bag of 100, I replayed that scene again and again and again, building Spartan fortresses out of Lego blocks and just ah, smashing the whole thing to pieces. It, it was really influential in the way I played and the way I played influenced the way I made comics eventually because I, re I, I just recreated those scenes in my head and eventually drew them. So it, it's a great series. Sadly, uh, the first 12 books are very good and then it sort of petered out and then went into other hands and the series still exists now. It's got a few spin-offs and none of that is worth the first 12 ones. So second choice, Alex. I think I've seen, I've only seen that, I think, on the forums. I think someone had mentioned it, uh, one of our European members, I think, had, because the, the image looks familiar, but... Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised, because in Europe, it's very, uh, in the French-speaking part of Europe, it's very famous. I th I'm sure it's been translated in German, but I was looking at it uh, this morning, wondering if perhaps Titan hadn't translated it, and I couldn't find any translation. So I've got to ask the uh, the little soldiers you were using. Was it that that ad on the back of the uh, Rage Comics for the Roman soldiers, the like hundred? I would have I would have paid good money for those Roman soldiers, but they weren't <laughs> available in Canada, so I had to I had to do with little Vietnam War U.S. Marines. Uh, it's all right. One, one of them had the bayonet, so it sort of looked like a Roman spare. Have to do with what you have. 
Okay, great. So I'm curious. Third one. You have that. Your, your later. This one will be more familiar in a certain form. Mm, Colin yeah. the Barbarian number four, because this is a French translation. And it's in black and white. Let's look at it. And I'm actually quite happy about that. So these comics were the ones that were available in Quebec and they were translated. Uh, we had this uh, publisher called Edition Héritage, Heritage Editions. Uh, and they were publishing Marvel comics, essentially, no DC. DC. DCs came a few years later, but at first it was all Marvel. It was in black and white. And it was always a little late compared to what was published in the US, something like a few months, sometimes a few years later. And uh, at the time, as a kid, I wasn't allowed to read superhero comics because my parents had decided that somehow they were giving me nightmares, which wasn't true. I did have nightmares, but it had nothing to do with my reading superhero comics, but superhero comics were banned. However, in our class, we had a small reading corner where kids could bring stuff from home, and they did bring the odd Hulk or Fantastic Four or Conan the Barbarian. So I got to read the issue there, and I was blown away, which that's where my love of Conan started and never ceased, became obviously the, the series I'm most, more familiar, most familiar with. And uh, because Conan was not a superhero, he was a guy in a loincloth with a sword, essentially a Tarzan with a bigger knife. That I was allowed to read. And so I, my parents allowed me to read Conan and I just kept reading and kept reading and my interest for Robert E. Howard stories that grew from that and eventually I went into Savage Sword of Conan and yeah, I'm still a Conan fan to this day. So I like this. Uh, the, the, the original issue is, should be number 19, of course. The Marvel comic should be number 19. Uh, this one is marked number four because they started the series a bit late. And so the, the first dozen of issues I didn't read until much, 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 much later. But that was a good start. Barry Smith hey. in black and white. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, black and white, uh, I'm curious about that because I have almost a sense with the publishing, like the printing quality of the time, that the art might actually look better in black and white than it does in color. It does. It does. It's not a personal bias. It is better in black and white because the, the colors are kind of muddied in those old comics. The old comic fans tend to, to say, oh, comics were better in the days, but that's not true of the colors. <laughs> The colors, at least the printing of the colors, they're much better today. Uh, and so when I look at that, that art in black and white, I can see what the artist was going for. And it's true for Barry, Barry Smith, but it's even truer for artists like, uh, let's say, Paul Gullacy or for uh, Jim Starenko. And I, the first the Master of Kung Fu comics that I read were all in black and white. And you have this chiaroscuro that's it's amazing. I mean, the shadows are deep, deep, deep. The light is, is just there. It's brilliant on the page. And when you see it in color, you've got those garish yellows and pinks all over and ugh, you can't see the art anymore. It doesn't look real at all, at all. If it's in black and white, Golasi looks photorealistic at times. I mean, the, the, the famous duel between Shang-Chi and Shen Kui in, I think it was number 38 or 39, it look, they look like photographs. If you look at it in color, it doesn't work. So I, I didn't begrudge the fact that I had to read those in black and white. I actually preferred that. And that's why I like the essential lines from Marvel. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I've got several several things I want to follow up on. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. I, but I, you know, as people that watch my YouTube channel know, I tend to ramble. That's why my videos are all like two hours long. But um, so black and white, yeah. Like I'm slowly putting together a run of Tomb of Dracula, but I actually have the first essential, which is in black and white, and with Gene Colan's art on. I think it's actually better in the the essentials in the black and white than it is in the actual original comics. And usually I I'm I want to have the originals, you know, but the art does look better in the black and white. Um, the other thing I was going to say is that when I was a kid, I didn't start with superhero books either. My parents didn't stop me from reading them, but I I just wasn't that familiar with superheroes. So when I started reading comics, it was mostly science fiction and fantasy. And so Conan is one of the first series that I read when I first started reading comics. One of the first like four or five comics I read was issue of Conan, I want to say it was 166. It might have been 167. It was one of those two. And uh, for me, like the gateway into superhero books was Thor because I was buying it because it was a fantasy, you know, it was, it was Walt Simonson's run. And so it was like all this fantasy, but then superheroes were guest starring in it. And I was like, oh, I guess that's kind of cool too. And then I started getting them. But Conan, you know, um, it's just interesting because the market fractured so much and it just, everything went to superheroes, you know, they just sort of got rid of everything else. But I think that was a big mistake because it brought all, all those other stuff brought in a lot of people um, that wouldn't maybe have gotten into here superheroes originally. Um, I do also have from last time I went to Quebec, I, I got one of the uh, black and white um, French editions from the heritage. I, I should have gotten it out. Uh, I should have known you were going to have some. Um, it's um, it's their reprint of um, Captain America 154, I think. It was the one where the, the cap from the 50s was fighting. Yeah, yeah. So I have I have the, the Quebec edition of that here somewhere. That's good. That's great. They were a blessing, those comics. I mean, we, we... We managed to get, because Marvel Comics were not that well distributed in Quebec. I mean, you could find them in Montreal, of course, you could find them in Quebec, which is a fairly large city, but I was living in the boondocks and we'd never get American comics. And once in the blue moon, you get an Archie or, oh, my God, an issue of X-Men, but that was very, very rare. So. I, I should have bought more of them. There was a, I was in a bookstore and they had a box of like 20 or 30 from the 70s and I, I should have bought all of them. But I didn't. <laughs> All right, enough about me though. Uh, so what do you have at number four? Number four, science fiction. Once again, European, but by then I had started reading superheroes, but I still kept reading European comics. And here comes a major impact in my career as a cartoonist, Philippe Drouillet with Delirious. You might be familiar with Drouillet's work. He's, he was one of the founders of uh, Metal Hurlant, which begat heavy metal eventually. And his most famous character is Lone Sloan, I suppose. But uh, he's mostly famous not for characters, but for pages where you've got tons and tons of stuff happening. Let's find a page, a typical Ria page like this. It's, it's just mad. It's full, 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 full of details. And it looks as if he was completely stoned when he drew that. And from interviews that you can get on YouTube, it seems that he was most of the time. So Drouillet was a major influence on me. Not on me, he was a major influence on the whole generation. He was one of the first cartoonists to do this kind of psychedelic sci-fi blended with fantasy and uh, 
almost run of consciousness comics in a sci-fi setting. Uh, he, he was uh, one of the first proponents of serious sci-fi comics in, in Europe because it was seen as some uh, uh, a sub, 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 sub genre. It, it, it was, you just didn't do sci-fi, not at all. Already doing comics was suspect, but at least you had Asterix, which had sort of a certain nobility about it, but sci-fi was a place you didn't go until people like uh, Druya came in. Uh, Moebius eventually followed suit and started doing uh, sci-fi as well, but Druya was one of the first to, to really open the door and many followed. So, Philippe Druya, that's available in English and I would definitely recommend it. It's interesting when, when I see art like this that I'm, I'm familiar with the artist, but I'm not familiar with the work. So my frame of reference is pretty much almost entirely American comics. And when I see his art, it reminds me of, um, and I'm not sure if the, either of these people were influenced at all, but it reminds me of a weird mix between Kirby and um, Von Bodie. Um, or I, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, it might be Von Bode, but you know, the, the guy I'm talking about from yeah. the early 70s, who did like those um, drug-inspired sort of like uh, cartoony yeah. characters and stuff, he did some stuff for like Creepy, that, that reminds me of the weird mesh-mash between those two, where it's got the, the huge, you know, science fiction scapes like Kirby, but the, the style is much more of a roundy sort of cartoony sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I would I would agree that both of these artists share with Duryea that that sense of liberty when putting stuff down down on the page. I mean, they, 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 they clearly do not limit themselves with codes and with what is proper and what can be done, and they just do whatever they like. They they let their imagination run wild, and you see you see the result on the page. Those huge double stage spreads with incredible characters and the stuff that shouldn't happen, planets running into one another. And that, that kind of freedom you see in, in Kirby, you see in Baudet, you see in Drouillet as well. Uh, you see in Moebius as well, I, I, I would say, but Moebius came a bit later. So yeah, great artists. All right, so the list. Yeah, let's go, next on the list. Next on the list. So, uh, oh, which one? I, I've got two of them, I, actually. In all honesty, I must pick this one. So, uh, this is a personal journey through the comics that formed me as an individual. And uh, at that point, I was allowed to read superhero comics. I still read European comics. And I went to college, which is not the actual American college, but it's, it's a high school away from uh, where I lived. So I was, I was in a boarding school and I was deeply unhappy in that boarding school. And I could go back home every weekend. And when I got there on the Friday night, I went downtown to see at the newsstand if there was something that could be interesting in terms of comics. And I found this line of book, which is digest sized. It, it's uh, a French translation of American comics again. You might recognize, I think it's Man Thing number 11 that we have here. And these digests were just, um, it was like a door had opened on the American comics treasure trove, let's, let's call it that. Because up to then I was limited by what Heritage would translate, which were relatively few titles. You had Captain America, Avengers Hall, Thor, 
Conan, Master of Kung Fu, and Dracula, and that was it. But in these digests, the, the publisher, which is French, it's called Artima, would take everything in the catalog of American comics and put, the, put, put them in these digests that are 180 pages. And you, you would find the absolute classics in there for peanuts. I mean, this thing costs a dollar. And what do you have? You have Steve Gerber and uh, Mike Klug's Man Thing. In the same issue, you've got Barry Smith's Conan. In the same issue, you've got, in this one, Submariner, a very long chapter by Mary Severin in this, in this particular issue. Another title, I'm cheating. This is my choice number five and a half. Uh, in this one, another digest. This is the entire Strange, Strange Tales run of Jim Starlin's Warlock. The entire thing published in one book for one dollar. I mean, can you imagine when you're a comic fan and you find that? You can read the entire Warlock story for one buck. Brand new. Wow, it was, it was magic. So those, those comics did wonders for my morale because then I was so happy to go back home on Fridays to get these comics. Oh, that's great. I, you know, as a side benefit, once you got that for a dollar, you then never have to read anything Jim Starlin writes for the next 40 years. Exactly. <laughs> over and over. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's great. Um, uh, I'm curious, like with the digest, I always think of Archie when I think of digests, and um, I feel like the digest form here in the U.S. never really took off beyond Archie. You get them at grocery stores, and there, you know, DC tried around the early '80s to do some digests, and it didn't really take off. Um, is it something that you saw more of uh, in Canada? Uh, Sli slightly more. I, I'd say that it had a little more success. Uh, the problem, I think, that with uh, DC's Blue Digest, Blue, Blue Ribbon Digest, is that the printing was crap. I mean, it, it was essentially printed on toilet paper. So the stories were nice, but you could barely see what was, what was printed then. Pocket Books did a good series of, uh, of reprints in digest size in the United States. You had the first six issues of Spider-Man, the first six issues of The Hulk, the first, something like three issues of Conan because they changed the disposition of the, of the images, but those were, good, those were good reprints. Those should have worked. I think that there, there might have been a market for it, but I don't think it was marketed as much as the rest because it, they were books as well. Comics were still sold, sold the newsstands. You had very few specialty shops and you couldn't find these books in regular bookstores. Well, these were widely distributed. So yeah, I think the digest market was a bit bigger in France than, than it was in the US. It's unfortunate because once again, it's black and white. So the printing is pretty good. It's pretty decent. The, the images there are, are quite nice. And funny, a funny story. You might notice that the titus, title is Eclipso, even yeah. if it stars man thing. That was brought up on, uh, on, the, on the, uh, the CCF uh, community board. Uh, that's because the, the publisher here didn't care where his characters came from. So he, he would start by publishing a new digest titled Eclipso. He published the first, how many Eclipso comics are there? Two, three, something like that. So he published all the stuff with Eclipso in it. And then he just used some other material, retaining the title. So uh, what was it? Uh, I think the unexpected was one of their titles. 
and it started yeah. publishing translations of the, the mystery stories from DC. And pretty quickly, they were putting McGregor's Black Panther in there, and the, uh, Stareko's Nick Fury was in The Unexpected. So the titles were just a, a mix right. of <laughs> American, uh, American titles and American contents. Let's just mix it all. And it, it was quite enjoyable. I think well, I've, I've encountered that a little bit before. I've got, um, when I went to Copenhagen, I, my cousin lives in Copenhagen, and I got some some comics there and I've got the first issue of Mike Grell's Green Arrow series um, except for it was published as an issue of Superman. <laughs> it's like Superman 391 it's got the Superman logo but the cover is the cover of Green Arrow. So I guess branding is more important than accuracy with some of these things. Yeah, and one, once you've got your, your title and your distribution deals, you don't want to start over by creating a new title. Yeah. That wasn't the era where you rebooted a series every two weeks. Uh, the good old Let's not go there. <laughs> okay, uh, so what do you have at book number six? Book number six, it's something of a cheat. I cheated earlier by introducing a choice number five and a half. This is a cheat because it's not actually a comic. It's one of the first indexes that were published. So I looked it up this morning. Apparently it was published in Canada. I thought it was an American product. And this is the sort of official Marvel Comics index, except that it's not published by Marvel. And it's got a lovely cover by Tim Conrad. And this is an index of all the comics that star Conan the Barbarian. And it's really just how, my God, it's a precursor to the uh, comics.org, uh, the Grand Comics Database concept. You've got, not articles, but you've got the cover for every Conan the Barbarian comic with who, what's the title, who are the creators, and goes all the way to issue 60 something, all the way to issue 61. Then you've got the same thing for Savage Sword of Conan, just to issue number 10, because this is a fairly old index. And because there was not yet enough Conan material to fill an index, they also added all that touched sword and sorcery in the Marvel Universe. So you've got all the Khazar comics in there. You've got all the Call comics in there. You've got Savage Tales, of course. And you've got the mystery comics like Tower of Shadows or Creatures on the Loot, because they, they featured sword and sorcery characters at the time. And this, to me, was a very important publication because it allowed me to dream about what I would get someday <laughs> if I ever became a millionaire. So I looked at the cover of Savage Tales and I thought, ooh, I know this comic is for sale. Let, let's go see on the back pages of Savage Sword of Conan. Oh my God, it's on sale for 70 bucks. $70, <laughs> 70 American dollars. That's like 3,000 Canadian dollars. I'll never afford it. But I would dream about it and I would look at those covers and learn them by heart and dream about the stories that were there. So uh, this was what a comic book is supposed to do. It allows us to go elsewhere to let our imagination run wild. So yeah, it was very, very uh, influential in my collecting habits, let's say. And what's nice is that little by little, I started collecting these books. Call and the Barbarians, for example, it's a three issue black and white magazine by, by Marvel. Very high quality. I mean, you've got the lovely Solomon Kane story in there by Neil Adams. Uh, you've got uh, 
covers by Michael Wellen. That's that's quite impressive. So you have the uh, egregious origin of Red Sonia. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got that all. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. That. It's it's in Golden the Barbarians. You're right. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, that that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about Sonia before, but oh god, what a wasted character. It's sad. I wonder if um, things like comics.org or some of the online resources are still serving that same purpose for new readers now. Because when I was a kid, I had a similar experience, but it was with the who's who in the DC universe. Would get those, and I had never heard of any of those characters because I just started reading comics, and it had these backstories that would go back 50 years, and I'd be like, wow, you know, who's this character? They look cool. They got a cool name. I've never heard of the comic. I've never seen these people. And it made me want to learn about all of these characters. And I wonder if new readers are getting that online or if they're just not having that experience at all anymore. I think it's a very important question from a historical perspective and from a marketing perspective as well. Because the attitude I, I kind of get right now from the publishers is that uh, the, mark, the readership is so small that it's not worth trying to please those old, uh, to please everybody or to maintain a coherent universe. Just hire a name that people will recognize, hire an artist that's going to sell a few issues, slap the name of a superhero who's popular and just write a story. I mean, and if in that story you have to kill three major characters, doesn't matter, they'll be back next issue. And I think it, it kills the willing suspension of disbelief. What you just mentioned about looking at, at certain characters you've never met before and reading part of their backstory and thinking, well, this is interesting. I want to learn more about these guys. That, that happened to me as well. And it's part of the reason I enjoyed American comics so much because there was a sense of history behind them. You'd read a story about Conan, about Shang-Chi, about, uh, about Superman even. You'd wonder, where did he come from? How come? He puts on a pair of glasses and people don't recognize him. Is there a reason for that? Who's, who's Supergirl? They say she's his cousin. How can, she, how can he have a cousin? And if you found the proper issues, you'd get the answers. And it was worth it because it was supposed to be a coherent story. The, 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 the fake history of these characters was supposed to be a, a real one, I mean, with quotation mark. I mean, it, it, you weren't allowed to do anything with characters. And I think that sense of history really pushed people to try to get those back issues, to get the whole thing. And now it doesn't happen anymore. For the past few decades, we get reboots very, very often. There's no sense of history at all. I don't care anymore about the characters I, I knew as a kid. I mean, oh, did you read? Such and such is gonna die next month. Well, so what? It's not my character anymore. It's not the one with the long history I was interested in. It's, it's just some, a character who looks like the character on you and he's got the same name, but I've got no emotional involvement in that, that character. So I don't, I think, yeah, that new readers cannot benefit from that experience we had when we were younger. Yeah, when I do my version of this, because I'm going to do one where I go through my 10, um, one of my books in there is actually a book that was very influential because it, led to me not caring <laughs> about about and like uh any of the stuff anymore because it finally just killed off my love of the shared universe because of the disdain oh 
You know, I got I'll a story too. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you were teasing your next pick, but let me, I'll just ask, what do you have for book number seven? Uh, uh, no, it won't be the next one. I put them chronologically. So yep. the next one, I'm about 16 years old. I have started reading American comics in English, not as French translations. And actually, I must credit American comics for teaching me English in the first place. So if my English is awful, blame comics. And uh, comics were still hard to get where I lived. As I said, it was pretty far out from the, the big towns. But once in a while, we'd go visit my grandmother, who lived in Montreal. And then there, there, there was a newsstand with all the titles imaginable. So I would buy them all and just gorge on them. And that's where I discovered the X-Men. And it wasn't love at first sight. Uh, a friend of mine was also an X-Men reader, and he was really keen on this new artist, John Byrne. And I thought, well, yeah, he, he's all right. He draws funny hands, though. And uh, he's not as good as Barry Smith, who was my artistic god at the time. But the story was engaging, and I picked a few issues. And then on one of those trips, I got this issue. X-Men number 134. The issue right before... Well, actually, this is the one that introduces Dark Phoenix. She's in a, in a cameo at the end. And the, in, the ending was just, whoa! The absolute cliffhanger. I mean, the the, the X-Men are, are in this ship going away, fleeing the Elfire Club, where they, 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 they've been severely beaten, and Jean Grey is clearly losing it, and then the ship goes boom as she turns into Dark Phoenix. And I thought, oh my god, I have to... Subscribe! This moment, I have to subscribe! So I subscribed immediately to the X-Men and three other comics because it was, in those days, you subscribed to three titles, got a fourth for free, so I took the advantage of doing that. And that's when I started to, become, to be a subscriber to comic books. And you could say that I jumped, I jumped on the train right at the right time because those were the best years of the X-Men title. And I thought it was amazing. And for many years after that, I was a, a, a devoted X-Men fan. I mean, the, the, those were the days of the Cold War when we expected that the Russians would nuke us from one, one day to the next. And the one thing that I regretted the most is that if the Russians and the Americans blow up the planet, there won't be any more X-Men comics. No, that's a faith, a faith worse than death. I mean, that was, I was that kind of comic fan. Oh, and, I, yeah. I, I, same here. I always used to be like, you know, because I grew up in the 80s, I'm a little bit younger than you are, but I, you know, grew up, 80s were my formative period, and it was all this, you know, the, we're going to be nuked, and, um, the day after, and all that. Yeah, exactly, and so, uh, I always, I just remember thinking, um, oh, I just hope I live long enough to get to see the end of this storyline. <laughs> I don't want the world to blow up until you know we finish with the mansion siege and Avengers. You know, I want to know what happens before the then the world can blow up. It's fine. <laughs> At least I'll know the end. Yeah. Hoping it's a better than ending than for the Game of Thrones show on television. <laughs> well, okay, we saw the end. Yeah. It ends. <laughs> So, I have a very different experience with X-Men, but I think I'm going to save that because I know we've got more, more coming up with Jean Grey. So, um... Unfortunately, uh, it's actually the next one. All right. Well, uh, it's, it's kind of appropriate that the, the first chapter and the last chapter of that era of my comics, comics collecting focus on Jean Grey. 
So after that X-Men issue, I started subscribing. I got subscriptions to several titles. I was a big reader of many, many comics like Micronauts. I loved Micronauts to death for the first 12 issues. Then I waited for something like 40 issues for it to regain its days of glory, which it never did. Uh, I read Conan, of course. I read Man-Thing. I read any comic I could get my hands on, I would, I would buy and, and read. Uh, Legion of Superheroes was there, the, the Giffen years, the original Giffen years. That, that, that was great stuff. So, yeah, the, the late 70s, the early 80s, there was a great period for comic books. Coloring was a bit flunky at the end. Lots of pinks, lots of yellows, bad printing. Uh, it, it got better eventually. And then came, yeah, the final chapter in that era. The Return of Jean Grey. And we were talking about the historical aspects of those make-believe characters earlier. And that, the return of Jean Grey to me was a, and that's overly dramatic, I realize it, but I'm a comic book reader, so, so sue me. It was a complete betrayal of the contract between comic book readers and comic creators when it comes to these make-believe characters. I mean, we have, a we have a sort of an unspoken deal we will buy your comics, we will accept your outrageous stories about such and such character coming back from the dead using this and that magical device, or because he was not really dead. I mean, when Dr. Octopus was blown up in a nuclear explosion, well, he was not exactly blown up, and we accept that kind of plot device. But when it's clear that the character is dead for real, then he's dead for real. And in the case of Jean Grey, I thought her death had been very well handled. At the end of the, the Phoenix Saga, she dies in what was an editorially mandated story. But I think that for once, Jim Shooter was in the right. I mean, uh, Jim Shooter was often in the right. He was not a pleasant person to work with, apparently. But I, I've got a lot of good things to say about some of his decisions. But in that particular case, anyway. I think it was the right thing to do to kill Jean Grey. It was dramatically far more satisfying than just depowering her. It made, so it made for a better story. And what Chris Claremont did later with those characters was even better. He showed us how those characters processed grief, how they went through those, the, the phases of grief. They, they had to accept that Jean was gone. When she appeared to come back and it was fake, they had to deal with that as well. And eventually, characters like Scott Summers found somebody else and married her and accepted the fact that, yes, your loved ones can die and it doesn't have to be the end of you. You can rebuild your life. And I thought that was a very positive message. And then all of a sudden, for crass reasons of making more money with the X characters, we get the carpet pulled from under our feet so that they can reform the original X-Men, which nobody wanted, to start this new X-Factor book. And while I understand that it's it makes sense to have multiple X-Men books since the X-Men make a lot of money. Why do it like that? Why, why tell us to our face, look kids, those, story, those stories we tell you, they're just stories. If you invest any emotion in them, you're a bunch of suckers. Screw you, give us our money, and that's how we want. And I, called, I quit comics cold turkey. I read that, I read X-Factor number one, and I quit comics for almost a year. I just stopped. I, no, I, I felt really, really, really betrayed. It's not the first time a character dies. I mean, it's fine. It's not the, f the first time a character comes back either. 
But in this case, it had been very clear that this death was, this death was real and it was undone. So I couldn't accept it. I don't know if you, you went through the same thing about that, that issue. Well, actually, <clears throat> I started reading comics in 84. And so this story was the first time I knew who Jean Grey was. So when she returned, I didn't know who the character was. And reading the story was the introduction. That's how I found out she died. <laughs> okay. The story was she came back. So I had no idea what was happening. And in retrospect, I completely agree with everything you just said. At the time, I was like, oh, I guess there used to be a different group of X-Men and they're bringing them back. Well, this should be interesting. I was wrong about that. X-Factor is terrible. Uh, personal opinion, I think that series is just tremendously boring. Yeah. A couple high points, you know, but but very few. I really don't like that title very much. Um, and yeah, I, I agree with you. My first issue of X-Men was was 195 so i had just started reading x-men like a year before this less than a year before this but um i think you know it didn't take me too long to decide that x-factor one was basically the end of the x-men and you don't really want to read anything past the regime gray because they just diluted it more and more and more and spread the characters thinner and thinner and just put out more and more mediocre stuff. And uh, yeah, it really was the, 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 it wasn't the beginning of the end. It was beginning and the end of the end. It was the whole end all at once. <laughs> but I didn't know it at the time. At the time I was brand new into comics. So I was like, okay, I guess they bring this character back. I didn't even know she existed. So yeah. Well, to be fair, the story in and of itself is not bad. I mean, it's it's the kind of wonky comic book science that you would expect from another title. But the, the emotional aspect of it, I think, was just unfair to the readers. It shouldn't have been done. It's kind of where the whole comics industry jumped the shark completely. Uh, yeah. It's interesting, 86 is kind of viewed by a lot of comics fans as like, this seminal year where all this great stuff, it's like, you know, you get like uh, the Dark Knight and then, you know, Watchmen comes out in 87 and it's like the beginning of this great new era. And I kind of think it's the other way around. I think a bunch of stuff happened in 86 that ended up just- The new universe. Really, really just ruining comics in a lot of ways. It just took a long time for the ramifications of that. Uh, yeah. But. I, I think that 1986 might arguably be the year where the old comics died and a new type of good comics came about. Things like The Dark Knight Returns, of course, Watchmen, but also The Shadow, and DC was doing a lot of good stuff at, the, at that time. That's when Alan Moore's Swamp Thing came about, then later Hellblazer and Sandman, the whole vertical line. So it's not as if comics ceased to be good altogether. But that old shared superhero universe, yeah, to me, that's when it pretty much died. After that, it was just the same stories recycled again and again. And well, I evolving. The I agree that there's a lot of good stuff that came out from that period, from DC in particular. However, I think even that has had a negative impact over the long run because there have been so many creators who are not that good but try and copy that and yeah. it's been three decades of uh, increasingly bad copies um 
in ways that are worse and worse. And that's where you get stuff like identity crisis <laughs> and, and stuff like that, where they're just like trying to one up the last, you know, gritty realistic story and they're people that just don't have the talent to pull it off. So for me, stuff like, you know, they're good stories and they're well done at the time but the ramifications they've had in the comic industry sense have been mostly negative for me personally. But. Yeah, I, I agree that uh, even, even a good story can have, can cause a lot of damage to the overall universe and to the overall industry, so. All right, so uh, I think we're on book nine now, right? Eight. Uh, yes. Whichever uh, yeah. one's next. Yeah. So, I quit comics cold turkey and that's it, good luck. <laughs> I left home, I went to graduate school, and I was uh, essentially alone in a new city. And because it was a bigger city, there was something that was not present in my hometown, it was a comic book store. So I thought, well, you've given up comics, don't go in there, no, don't, don't, don't go in there, no, no, don't, don't, don't go. So I went in there, bought a few comics, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing was there, um, that was, that was all right. And I sort of slowly picked up my bad habits. I did not, I did not resume collecting the other titles. I, I, didn't, I didn't jump on the X-Men and just buy back all the issues I had missed and everything. I just tried other stuff. And little by little, I grew to discover new titles. And chronologically speaking, this one comes next. And it's a very bad comic. It's Starbrand number 11 but it had a huge impact on my life, on my personal life. And it, it's kind of humbling that such a bad comic could have such an impact. I just mentioned I was in graduate school. I was doing research in molecular biology and my stuff in the lab was not working well. After two years, I still had no publishable result. And I thought, dear, my dreams of becoming a scientist are rapidly coming undone and I am going to be unemployed and I won't even graduate and I should really give up and find something else to do. And I was seriously considering giving up my studies and just doing, doing some other degree in a more marketable skill. And in that story, you've got the main character who's a Jim Shooter lookalike and he's been given superpowers and he doesn't know what to do with it. And essentially, the guy is a layabout, and he just wants to coast on his past successes. And uh, one of his friends tells him, you know what? You're a loser. You're a loser. You've got all these, these you, you've got all these skills. You, you've got, you, the world is, the, the world is, it, it, the sky is the limit. You can do whatever you like, as long as you put your mind into it. Stop complaining that it's hard and just do something. And I took it personally. I thought, my God, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm complaining that my research is not going, going well and I want to give up because of it. And I thought, I was ashamed of myself. Because of a John Byrne comic, because of Star Brand of Byrne 11, I was, I was truly ashamed of myself. And I thought, yeah, right, well, if it's good for you, what is it, 75 cents comic? It should be good for me. I mean, I'll just give up. I'll, I'll, I'll stop thinking about giving up. I am not going to give up. I'm going to stick to my research. I'm going to make it work eventually, and we'll see what happens. And because of that, I, I had the life I eventually led. I, mean, I stayed in school, and I graduated. And 
got my degree and everything. And all of, all of that thanks to John Byrne. Thank you, Mr. Byrne. I won't say that I love all your comics, but this made it. Hey, back I was gonna say, I, I think that's a great story. I was going to make a joke that I frequently felt ashamed after reading a John Byrne comic, but it's never, <laughs> it's never had a positive impact on me afterwards. <laughs> uh, Actually, Byrne had, had a lot of impact on my artistic style. And he really, I was very influenced uh, by Druillet first, but you couldn't say, you couldn't tell anymore. Uh, Barry Smith influenced me a lot. John Byrne influenced me as well. I would have liked to be Michael Golden at one point, but that never stuck. So my style looks quite, it's quite similar to John Byrne's right now. Yeah, I can see it. I see it. So we're now at number 10. Right on the, the heels of the previous one, I was still going to that comic shop. And I was enjoying Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. And one of the characters I enjoyed the most in Swamp Thing was John Constantine, that really cool Sting lookalike fellow who was sort of a magician, but not really. And uh, he was just essentially a cool guy in Raincoat. And he got his own title, Hellblazer number one. And it was something of a surprise. First, I was not overly happy that Constantine would get his own, and it's Constantine, it's not Constantine. It's written in the comic, it's pronounced Tyne. So Constantine is uh, he's the main character and I was not overly happy about it because I thought he was, he worked very well as a supporting member of the cast uh, because you didn't have to explore his, his past. You didn't have to tell who he was. He could remain mysterious. And in this comic, of course, you deal with his own personal issues and you get to, to know him as an individual, which makes sense for a comic, of course, but I thought it, it could easily cause him to lose interest, to, to become uninteresting. Uh, luckily, that didn't happen. Yes, he lost a lot of mystery because we were exposed to his past and to what made him tick, but the comic was pretty good. Jamie Delano did a very good run in the beginning with a succession of artists. I didn't much like Alfredo Alcala's inking on the first issues, but I mean, He's competent, at least, but I thought that his, his style is more appropriate for things like Conan than for a mystery magazine like, like Hellblazer, or a horror magazine like Hellblazer, especially in color. But that's neither here nor there. So, uh, Constantine grew to Hellblazer became, became a pretty good comic, I think, and it was not about super monsters, and it was not about superpowers. It was, uh, he was not zapping people. It was a very human comic. And many other titles started using the same recipe. I don't know if it's by accident, if all those people weren't trying to imitate Alan Moore some way, but you got all those comics, mostly from DC at first, but eventually it spread throughout the industry, where we were having more and more human elements and more and more of the British culture as well. That was pretty cool. I had two British friends at the time. They introduced me to beer. I don't know if you've heard about beer. It's great stuff. It's and uh, so you had Hellblazer. And this was the door to other things that I enjoyed, like Sandman, like uh, The Adventures of Luther Arkwright, which was a limited series, and many, many other series that eventually got me to try independent comics, which I hadn't tried all that much till then. Things like Cerebus, things like Nexus, and uh, Berlin was good. Finder, which is a gem of a series. It's, uh, it's published by Carla Speed McNeil. I think she still lives in Annapolis. If you can find Finder, try it. It's a great, great indie series. It's, it's absolutely unique. 
in terms of science fiction comics, it's, it's wonderful. And all these titles, yeah, I discovered in part because of Hellblazer. And that's, that was a long time ago. It was, what, 25 years, 30 years ago, perhaps, along those lines. And that was uh, what made me the collector I am today. Oh, I don't have a final issue because it would be the 11th. I don't collect much nowadays anymore. Once I finished my Savage Sword of Conan collection, once I finished Savage Tales, I thought, well, that's pretty much it. I don't see the point of collecting more floppies. They're just in long boxes in the house. They take a lot of room. I think that's it. I'm, I don't think I'm a collector anymore. I've collected all I had to collect. I still enjoy reading, obviously. I still like reading old stuff, but yeah, I don't think I'll buy a lot, a lot more. It's interesting. I mean, I'm still a hardcore collector. I have piles of comics literally at my feet. Okay. <laughs> I've got a pile of old Lois Lane issues that are literally, I just tripped over while we were talking. <laughs> but it's interesting, like when I talked to Shaxper last time, he doesn't really collect anymore either. And for him, what happened was he, he got um, Batman number nine. And he said once he got that, it was a huge thrill, but then he just, everything else paled by comparison and he just never felt the need to collect anything after that because he just wasn't gonna recapture that experience and it was just all downhill. So he started selling off some of his stuff and just getting the collections as well. Um, but uh, I just find it interesting the different experiences because I'm like collecting more than I've ever collected, but a lot of the stuff, I've never read it. I want to read it at some point. Mm -hmm. I'm like, um, I just want to have it, you know, so. I know, I know. I was like that for the longest time. When it was, when it came to Savage Sword or even to Savage Tales, those were issues I wanted to have. What I had, I had seen in that Marvel Index, I really wanted to own those comics and not reprints either. I wanted the real fame. But once I got them, I don't know, it's not that I don't understand the, 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 the desire to collect another series, but there are no other series that touched me so much that I need to have them. So nowadays, if I try a new, uh, uh, a new old series, uh, an old series that I've never read before, I, I don't really want the old issues. Um, it's probably going to be more practical and cheaper to get reprints. And reprints are so much more available today than they used to be that it's much easier. I'm not, at the, I, I'm not mature like Shakespeare, though. I'm not going to sell my collection. <laughs> what I have, I keep. I'm a hoarder. And one of my, my, my great, uh, uh, how did you find? One of the things I regret most about considering the future is that neither of my sons are interested in comic books. So I got these crates full of precious comics, and I don't know who I'm going to give them to. Yeah, I've reached the limit of how much space that I can take up. So this week I've actually been selling off things that I no longer want so I can make room for all the new stuff I'm buying in. Uh, just this sort of just like shuffling chairs on the deck of the Titanic. <laughs> I'm going to get, I'm going to, the whole ship of comics is going to go down at some point, but I'm still going to be rearranging which issues are in the collection. Yeah. Proceed, proceed with care, because one thing I learned about giving away or selling books is that two weeks after you sold them, you need them again. Yeah. For some reason or other, oh yeah, I, I got that issue. No, I don't have it anymore. I give it away. Oh, what have I done? 
yeah i've put together like uh, a thor collection like three or four times now and the last time i almost finished it oh. I, I was only missing four issues i was i was missing 83 84 85 and 94 i had all the rest from 86 to 502 dear god i sold them i sold them all or traded i trade just traded some way um, but i realized like I didn't love the run enough to spend the money to finish it. Okay. Like, do I love this run so much that I want to spend $4,000 on a journey in industry 83? I was like, I just don't love it that much. And so I just got rid of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's all or nothing. You know, it's, it's, you know, some people can just collect the one part of the run, but not me. You've got to have the whole thing. So I, I wish I could be, uh, I could be mature enough to, dispose of my collections. I mean, but even those crummy Spider-Woman issues, <laughs> I, I'm used to having them and I can't get rid of them. That's it for this episode of Origin Stories. Again, I want to thank my guest, Roquefort Raider. I really uh, had a great time and I appreciate him joining me here. I hope you enjoyed this look at his comic book journey and uh, found the discussions interesting. Of course, next time I'll be joined by another guest and we'll be learning their origin stories by looking at the 10 comics that shaped them as comic book fans uh for now though that's it and thanks so much for joining and i'll see you next time origins origins it's where we come from it's where we've been everyone's got one 